Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to episode 245 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor here, and I'm joined as always by the great Dan Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. How's it going, Dan? I'm fine. Um, I, I feel like we would be remiss not to, to start with an acknowledgement of, of what a rough week it's been in, in the media world and to say that our thoughts and hearts go out to all of our friends and compatriots who have been feeling that corporate pinch everybody deserves better and we all deserve better media so support your local media subscribe to a local newspaper subscribe to a website that has a paywall etc the media it needs your help yes absolutely support journalism help us help you true story how are you doing though leslie i'm good man you know it's it's just a a shitty climate and it's just you know it's it's taking me back to, to 2009 when the media landscape was also similarly impacted the way we've seen. Like, as an L.A. native, what's happening with the L.A. Times is just heartbreaking to see. And again, you said it best, so sending out all of our positive vibes to everyone impacted uh, by media layoffs this week and this month because it's not going to get any better in our sector. (sighs) And guess what? At least one of our topics this week is going to talk about layoffs in a different part of the media. So, phew, apparently that's just what's what's in the water. Yeah. You can call me the Grim Reaper of television and that's fine because, you know, I, I don't think I've written a cancellation story this week, but it, it does feel like the, the writing has been on the wall with all the cancellations. We've seen a couple of uh, pre-FX reports on the state of peak TV saying officially the bubble has burst. We'll get that information probably in February, time to TCA and FX's day before the press. So expect that formal tally to, to come in the next couple of weeks. Um, but uh, yeah, before we get into all of that stuff, I think we should start where we usually do, Dan, with headlines. Number one. Leading off, Sex and the City is the latest HBO and Warner Brothers Discovery show to be licensed to Netflix as the conglomerate continues to break down its walled garden after shows like Young Sheldon and Six Feet Under were previously sold to the streaming giant in non-exclusive deals. So what does that mean? It's, well, these shows are on both platforms. And honestly, from my vantage point, it's, it's a bit of a surprise to see a crown jewel like Sex in the City, especially considering Max has, and just like that, be sold or licensed to another outlet, even though Max retains the streaming rights too. It's just in, in two places. I mean, so it, it's helping on one end add some money to the bottom line at Warner Discovery, but it's also, you're doing that by sacrificing the strength of one of your your biggest exclusive properties in Sex and the City. Yeah, it's it's always distracting to go through the Netflix top tens, and it's like crazy reality series you never heard of, a uh, random movie that bombed at the box office seven years ago, HBO show, HBO show, Young Sheldon, HBO show, and like One Piece or something. I mean, did you see Louder Milk is on the is is like yes. on that blew my mind. I mean, for those who don't know what that show is, that was originally greenlit by an outlet that was formerly known as AT&T's Audience Network, which eventually became DirecTV's Audience Network, which eventually ceased operation. Uh, and the show starring Ron Livingston and from the Farrelly's 
just vanished and <laughs> now it's finding success. It's got three seasons on Netflix now. So that's a kind of hilarious that a show that last aired, let's see, in 2020 <laughs> is now one of the most watched Netflix shows. Yeah. If, and if your Netflix algorithm is anything like my Netflix algorithm, they've been pushing Loudermilk hard, which hard. is entirely fair because I mean, somewhat dyspeptic middle-aged white guy being grouchy to everybody around him. I mean, it's probably on brand for me. Netflix at least knows that much. But yeah, very strange. It also, at least for some period of time, it was the 101 network. That, yeah, it was. I think before it was Audience Network. Yeah, it was it was it was Audience Network, it was the 101 network, it was just Direct TV original. It, they they ran through a lot of strange that they were never able to successfully uh, establish a brand, given that they were never able to successfully establish a name, but they definitely had a an awful lot of shows for a couple of years, most of which for the most part were not hugely memorable, but Loudermilk, hey, look at it, you know what <laughs> How strange it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's kind of like when you aired on Lifetime in its first season and they renewed it before it even launched because they thought it was a hit. It is a hit. Obviously, we know that now thanks to Netflix. But if it had just continued to air on, on Lifetime, well, it would have just been that one in one season because they reversed course on the season two renewal before Warner Brothers sold the show to Netflix. And then it became the, the hit that it is today. So it just really shows that it's all about reach. We can anoint it now. Everyone else has, but we can officially do it now that the streaming wars have ended. Netflix is clearly the the victor here, especially when you see someone like Warner Discovery, when those two companies merge to create a company with scale to compete with Netflix. And now you're feeding the beast that you you set out to topple. Yeah, it's... And remember that Leslie Goldberg has already guaranteed that Girls 5 Eva is going to be a massive hit when it premieres on Netflix. Yep. Mark my words. I do not quibble that it is going to find a larger audience on Netflix. Massive hit? Who knows? We'll know in like two years. Anywho, <laughs> continuing along with headlines, season eight of Rick and Morty has been pushed to 2025 as a result of production delays caused by the writers and actors strikes. You might have heard a little bit about that. That being said, a new Rick and Morty anime series, which sounds strange, is going to bow later this year. Yeah. So, I mean, look, the season seven of Rick and Morty just ended in December, so it's not really a big surprise that the show that was once airing annually is, is going to be held off uh, the schedule for 2024. But look, you're still getting some new Rick and Morty. It's just going to look a little different with the anime stuff. So. Elsewhere, streamer BET, which exists, is developing a half-hour scripted dramedy inspired by the the life of Chris Ludacris Bridges that counts the rapper, actor, and Larry Wilmore among its executive producers. So some fun development news there. I feel like Leslie should be reading this headline since she is the self-appointed Grim Reaper of television, apparently. But on the cancellation front, Max has axed the flight attendant after two seasons. The Kaylee Cuoco dramedy uh, from executive producer Greg Berlanti last aired about 75 years ago, or alternatively <laughs> in the spring of 2022. And folks say that the streamer wanted to do a third season, but that Kaylee Cuoco was ultimately ready to move on from the globetrotting show that, well, originally at least seemed like it was supposed to be a limited series. So, yeah. I don't know. It's too bad. I, I I liked me The Flight Attendant. It was a it was a good show, even if the second season was a complete and total mess. But Yeah, I, I didn't love season two, but season one was awesome. We had Kaylee Cuoco back on, on one of our year-end shows. She's always a, a terrific interview. And, you know, and look, we had the showrunner as well. We, yeah. uh, we had multiple Flight Attendant based <laughs> interviews. Yeah, but yeah, it's not not really a surprise here. So, you know, the, these limited series that are, you know, first of all, can we just talk for a second? Can I rant for a sure. second about the, the phrasing of, you know, things that are billed as a limited series? It has no meaning anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's basically your your way of saying this is a limited series in, in that it's maybe 10 episodes or less. 
but it might return. It's not a closed-ended series. It might return. If, hey, if this works, we're going to renew it. Like, beef, like, that's going to get a second season. It's just not a, it's not a question of if, just when. We already know Big Little Lies, you know, we saw what happened there. You know, it won everything in its path, competing in the limited category. But then, of course, after it, it swept all the awards, then it was renewed for a second season. They're talking about season three now. I mean, just... Stop calling it a limited series. Just call it a drama. We all know that nothing has 22 episodes unless it airs on broadcast, right? Like everything's limited. Can we just stop calling it a limited series? You want to call it a mini series? Well, I mean, that's call it a mini series, but it's an event series. Like either way, it's just you're just making shit up to, to promote something. Everything sure. can be renewed unless they just, unless it flops, basically. Well, I think that part we certainly know is that nothing is dead if someone yeah. wants to make more money off of it. Right. So that is the amount of times I've been told in my career that oh, it was always envisioned as a li- as a closed ended limited series and one season show. I'm like, right. Except nowhere in any of the entire season's marketing did it ever say that this was closed ended, one and done. That's it. Because of course, that's just a, a way for for platforms and networks to avoid saying that something is canceled. Which is an actual conversation that I have more times than I'd like to admit. Listen, if you're taking a show off the air and you're not going to keep renewing it, it's canceled. It either comes to its creative conclusion or it's canceled. But either way, it's canceled. Comes to coming to an end. Stop arguing with reporters. It's coming to an end, or it's canceled. Either way, it's not coming back. It's just how you're phrasing it. I think obviously there are many reasons for the semantics of it all. Uh, Some of it is obviously contractual. Some of it is based on contractual. It's not contractual. I don't know what. I mean, Big Little Lies season one that was originally conceived as closed ended because in our reporting we know that they had to go back to all the stars and ink them to standard TV contracts. And a standard TV contract covers six seasons, at least for broadcast anyway. So when it's truly envisioned as a as a limited or or a one season show and that's it, that's when it's contractual. When you know that the actors and the cast and, and producers and no one involved in the project has a deal in place for season two. But if it's something like Ted, which is being billed as what it was, I think it was promoted as a limited series or an event series. It is an event series. Event. Okay. It's just a series. It's going to get renewed. It's hugely successful for Peacock to, you know, define that how you will. But that'll come back to. So this concludes my my shitty TED talk. <laughs> <laughs> TED talk. TED talk. Ted. Did you just talk about TED? <laughs> I see what I did there. No, you don't see what you did there. No, anyway, because it wasn't intentional. But I'll take credit for it just the same. Own your brilliance, Leslie. Own your brilliance. No. <laughs> Okay, fine. Be ashamed of your brilliance, Leslie. Sure, Be ashamed. That, that, I mean, that, that's more on, on brand. Up next, in Hollywood, you can go home again. Jon Stewart is returning to The Daily Show, but there's a catch. Number two. The multiple Emmy-winning host has signed on to return to the Comedy Central late night show and will take his seat behind the anchor desk on Mondays through the election cycle. Stewart will remain on board with the show as an executive producer, however, through 2025. Dan, your initial reaction here before we get into all the nitty gritty here. My initial reaction is that it reeks of desperation, but that they were desperate. That that is my initial reaction. Is that if you had Okay, so let's do the timeline on this one. Trevor Noah said in September of 2022 that he was leaving the show. And his last show was December of 2022. So if you're Comedy Central and you're the producers of The Daily Show, you figure that timetable allows you to have a totally relaxed 
totally easygoing, but entirely fulfilling search for a new host that allows you to have a new host in place for 2024, where the election run is supposed to allow for your new host to find their footing, to burnish their reputation, and to become a superstar. That is the best case scenario. Well, if you had told Comedy Central executives and the producers of The Daily Show in September 2022 that January 2024 was going to roll around and they would not have a permanent host, their heads would have absolutely exploded. Well, okay, if you had told them, however, in January 2024, you're going to have Jon Stewart back, maybe they would have been like, yay, and then you would have told them, but you're going to have him back for one night a week. Meh. So, so like it reeks of desperation. On the other hand, it is absolutely the best case scenario within the worst case scenario. So break down the logistics here, Leslie. Yeah. So Stewart officially begins February 12th and he will be followed for, by correspondents, likely including Jordan Klepler, Desi uh, Lydic, Ronnie Chang, Michael Costa, and more as Comedy Central continues to delay finding the permanent host. But look, I mean, Stewart spent 16 years with The Daily Show before handing it over to Trevor Noah. Noah made the announcement in September and and surprised Paramount insiders. His decision to leave came out of the blue. And look, you know, they were close to naming a new replacement with Hassan Minaj, but then he was considered a liability after a story revealed that he exaggerated and made up autobiographical details of his comedy. He called the, the story uh, misleading. But look, they, they had their guy and then they didn't. And now and then Stewart had his Apple show and then he didn't. So look, when the problem with Jon Stewart imploded on Apple because of creative differences, i.e. Stewart wanted to talk about things that Apple didn't want him to talk about, everyone, you know, on, on social media was basically saying the same thing. Look, go back to The Daily Show. Like, they still are searching, right? You saw, everyone saw when Trevor Noah won his Emmy, Roy Wood up on stage talking about, please find a host. Look, it's not been easy for anyone on that show. And we've seen, obviously, linear ratings decline for it. But that's not a surprise because no one's watching anything on linear. But, you know, either way, to me, this is the best news of the week. And it's been a, a pretty glim week, especially in media. But, you know, look, Stuart, you, you have him even one out of four nights. That's fine. But beyond that, he is a star maker. Look at the people whose careers he launched with The Daily Show. Stephen Colbert, John Oliver, Michael Che, Samantha B, even Trevor Noah, who was uh, relatively unknown here in the U.S. So, you know, look, th there's opportunity here for Comedy Central to make this show relevant after a, a revolving door of, of guest hosts and correspondents. But more than that, it's, you know, Jon Stewart in a timely way getting to, to weigh in on the election. That's a win. This is still giving a man a fish instead of teaching a man how to fish, to my mind. Or this is a sports team that has a bunch of top prospects, and the choice is, do we nurture the prospects and become a dynasty, or do we bring in an aging veteran who might help us get one championship instead of six, and you take the one championship? Well, okay, Banners are forever, and if you get a championship, you get a championship, and you make that deal every single time. On the other hand, if you're a fan of a sports team, you grow attached to your prospects. And I think that this is one of those things where what they hope is, and I think they will definitely get this, that Stewart comes in and he raises the ratings for the Stewart episodes of the show. 
okay, absolutely. And I think that will occur. What they're hoping is that there will be a ripple across the other three nights of the week and people will tune in and maybe people who hadn't necessarily watched in the Trevor Noah era will discover that a lot of these correspondents are fantastic, that that people like Jordan Klepper, Desi Lydic, all the people who you mentioned are just really good. And that's the best case scenario, again, within this worst case scenario. I would say every bit as likely is that people simply decide that Sunday night is last week tonight with John Oliver, Monday night is last week tonight with John Stewart, and The Daily Show doesn't exist anymore for the next three nights, and it becomes a people tune in on Monday for the John Stewart Daily Show, and they just don't pay attention to the rest of it, and all of those talented people, their work is barely seen. Also, you know that at some point, it's one thing to say John Stewart's going to do one night a week now, but then come the conventions in in the summer, is he going to say, okay, I'll do two or three? Come October, is he going to be like, sure, I'll go, you know, it's the week before the election, I'll do all four nights. And like, is it going to be the case where he's going to have enough of a appetite where he's going to want to start doing this more, but still not going to want to do this more after November. So he's going to squeeze out the other people's time because he's enjoying doing it up to the election. And then the election happens and you're left in exactly the same situation that they were all of last year. That that to me is kind of the semi nightmare where you get a nine month ratings boost out of this that does absolutely nothing to support the long-term solvency of the show. And that's that would be what I would be worrying about. But obviously, you know, it's not their fault that that they lost four months of potential shows and auditions for the strike last year. And it's not really their fault that they zeroed in on Hassan Minaj and then the New Yorker story hit and suddenly he was temporarily unemployable. The truth is... All of the stuff in that New Yorker story, people have processed it to the degree to which they're going to process it. I don't know that there's anything new. And I think for a lot of people, they look at it and they don't understand what any of the problems were in the first place. I think a lot more people never paid any attention to the New Yorker story and don't know what any of that was about. Anyway, it would not surprise me if nine months from now, Hassan Minhaj was perfectly viable as a potential candidate to host The Daily Show. That would not surprise me. I do not think that what he did or didn't do or the degree to which he fabricated or didn't fabricate, I don't think that in the long run, any of that is a career ender for him, obviously. So I think maybe that's another thing that they could hope, hope is that the show goes along for five or six months with Jon Stewart giving them a slight ratings boost, and then at a certain point, John Stewart says, yeah, and joining me tonight is the next host of The Daily Show, Hasan Minaj, and he comes out and and he kind of co-hosts the last stretch of, of the fall, and, and then they pass the torch there. Some people also, I'm sure, believe that he's totally soiled and that he couldn't host the show anymore, Hasan Minaj, but that's, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that one. I'm just I'm just saying what, what I kind of suspect. So anyway, it's this is interesting, and you know, it, okay, just to sum it up one more time, it's this is the best case scenario and the worst case scenario. Yeah, but also, look, don't discredit his work as an executive producer in terms of Jon Stewart. Like, look at the careers that he's launched or helped to launch. You know, he can do things behind the scenes with maybe some of these correspondents of, of whatever Comedy Central was looking for that they didn't see in correspondence at the time. Maybe there are things that, that Stewart can help bring out or things that he can help behind the scenes with the way that the show is made that, that leans in or different ideas that he can bring to it. Like, look, he's he's a king of what he does, right? Maybe he can help because clearly Paramount and Comedy Central need it. Very much so. 
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Up third, Netflix is hopping into the ring with the WWE. Number three. In a massive deal, valued at $5 billion. Leslie, would you like to do your Dr. Evil? $1 billion times five. Over 10 years, so I guess, you know. So anyway, $5 billion over 10 years. WWE's Monday Night Raw will leave its longtime home on USA Network for Netflix starting in January of 2025. The streaming giant will also become the home of WWE content, outside of the U.S. Break this down, because for some people, this is a pretty huge deal. Yeah, I mean, $5 billion will get anyone's attention in this landscape. But what we do know is that Netflix will now stream Raw every Monday starting next year in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., and Latin America, 52 weeks a year, and will also be the exclusive home of WWE content outside of the U.S., including events like WrestleMania, documentaries, and other original series. So why does this matter? Why are we talking about wrestling? Well, first, it's a major coup for Netflix because the streamer, like everyone else is looking to reduce churn and ramp up live programming events that it considers quote-unquote sports entertainment and wrestling fits perfectly along those lines. So Netflix, we already know, is doing the Netflix Cup. That's the tournament that pairs Formula One drivers with golfing stars, and they have an upcoming tennis matchup featuring Rafael Nadal. But more than anything, this is a way to get live viewers and keep them for 52 weeks a year, starting in in January 2025, Dan. This is big. And we talked for so long about the importance of live to broadcast, how that was the only thing that was actually getting verifiable ratings, and then how important that was going to be for streaming. And I think a lot of that was kind of simmering for a long time. Like, I don't know that necessarily there were the huge breakthroughs in streaming live that people expected. And I think we're beginning to see that. I think you saw it to some degree with Apple, with the MLS games when Lionel Messi moved over. I think that got a a big attention boost for Apple. I mean, look at Peacock with the NFL. That was exactly what I was going to say is, is there was a lot of outrage about uh, our constitutional right to free NFL playoff games and and Congress people who were submitting bills accusing Peacock and NBCU of making people pay for playoff games and whatever. But the audience that tuned in for that playoff game on Peacock was gigantic. 
and like gigantic enough that they actually put numbers on it and told us what it was. It was 22 million. It was it was ridiculous. And it did what Peacock and NBC Uni consistently believed that the Olympics were going to do. And the Olympics obviously moved the needle for them, but not, I don't think, in any way similar to what that NFL playoff game was. So seeing that, I think we're going to see it in a week or two or a couple weeks, whenever the Screen Actors Guild Awards are on. I was just going to bring that up, February 24th. Yep. Yeah. So that's, that's another big let's play around with live thing. I think we're going to look back at these strange delays and strange promotion around that Chris Rock live special last year or whenever it was, which apparently was nominated for a Golden Globe or something, whatever it was, regardless where it was it wasn't like a disaster or anything. It was just a little bit bumpy. And there there was whichever reality show on Netflix attempted to do the live show where it was a total fiasco. Hey, was it Love is Blind? Yeah, sounds right. Okay, yes, definitely. <laughs> I was just going to say, one of those reality shows Dan definitely does not watch had a fiasco <laughs> of a live event that drove everybody crazy. But yeah, this this feels, uh, I mean, to me, this feels like Netflix saying, look, whatever the kinks were, we've worked them out. I'm also too inc- inclined to uh, to want to mention uh, Wrestlers, the Netflix unscripted drama from the Last Chance You people, which was in my top 10 for last year. I would like to hope that every single time Netflix airs one of these WWE things that they put a little, if you like this, watch Wrestlers, because it's a fantastic little show. Anyway, just I mean, was to. it ma- produced in conjunction with WWE? Because if no. then, I would imagine it did. No, so. no. It, it was yeah. not. It well, was, I, I just assume that the Netflix algorithm will be smart enough to know if you like this, you should probably check this out. I know, uh, because it's, it's a lower level independent wrestling league that's featured in wrestlers so i mean imagine if heels went to netflix right the, the stars wrestling drama that that they just canceled imagine if what it you know that that, that would probably help that show a lot too right or i or suspect even it would be Rock. huge how huge girls five ever huge is how huge <laughs> i think it would be no I, I i mean you're right the simple version is you're right if in the middle of this deal when it actually starts happening they were to pop heels into the you might like thing Absolutely. Heels would become a smash hit. I hope Mike O'Malley and Stephen Amell and all of that are uh, <laughs> are, are setting up their schedule to get Heels moved to Netflix in time for this. Yeah. But I mean, you know, look, at the same time, you know, I, I do want to note, you, you know, we've seen other streamers push farther into sports, right? Apple has a, a deal with MLB, much to my chagrin, because those broadcasts are tedious for baseball fans. Peacock has aired baseball game, MLB, like there's, everyone wants a piece. But Netflix co-CEO Ted Sarando said this week during the company's earnings report that the streamer is not looking to make huge rights commitments to major sports leagues, i.e. the NFL or the NBA or, or even Major League Baseball. And instead, he said that Raw has been, quote, historically underdistributed outside of North America. And well, Look, Netflix is a global platform that's going to make it what's already a really, really big and important franchise even bigger. And honestly, you know, for a, a look at, at the state of linear TV, look no further. This is the first time in Raw's 31-year history that it will not air on linear. I truly wonder if that Peacock playoff game, if it had aired on Netflix, 
if there would have been anywhere near the nope. outrage. I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, that I think you're right about that. I think that despite the fact that Netflix is a subscriber service and more expensive, requires people to pay more for it than Peacock does, I do not think there would have been Congress people rending their garments if that game had just been on Netflix because... They probably already have Netflix. Exactly, exactly. Because Netflix has kind of become the Xerox of, of streaming television to the point at which everyone just kind of assumes, ah, well, of course you have Netflix. Whereas Peacock did not come with the same assumption. It forced people to discover who or what a Peacock was. And yeah, so... But then it served its function. Totally. <laughs> no, no, no one is saying that that Peacock playoff game was not a huge win for Peacock. It, that was, yes, that was fantastic for them. So yeah, who wouldn't want to be in the business? <laughs> yeah. So what remains to be seen is if Peacock will remain the home for WWE premium events, right? So I don't know anything about wrestling, but I find the business of it really fascinating. So stay tuned. We'll see what, what happens because we know that SmackDown currently airs on Fox alongside premium WWE events like the Royal Rumble, which is exclusive to Peacock. USA Network is going to take over SmackDown later this year with WWE NXT moving to the CW. Yeah, everyone wants a piece. So, and I'm guessing WWE, even though when you look at the $5 billion price tag on this, is still probably a bargain compared to the NBA, etc. Up next... I promised the talk of layoffs would make their way into topics later in the podcast. Paramount Global, the company that houses CBS, Paramount Plus, and a bunch of cable networks, including Comedy Central and MTV, warned this week that layoffs were coming as the company also plans to reduce spending on international content. Number four. Leslie, what's going down with Paramount Global? I mean, honestly, it's the same thing that's going down with everyone else and why you're seeing all of these cancellations. Everyone is trying to right-size spending and the economy, and you've got all these different economic headwinds. You're seeing layoffs in the media sector. Their advertising market is getting soft. And when you've got all of these streaming companies that are relying on ad tiers to help balance the books and the ad numbers are not going the way that they want them to, you're going to find yourself in this situation. At the same time, we know that after Warner Brothers Discovery, that basically ushered in this new wave of mergers and acquisitions, which is not obviously new to the industry. That's obviously something that, that is, is cyclical. But right now we know that Paramount Global is getting interest. A lot of people are, are kicking the tires, right? So we know that Skydance Media, that's the David Ellison's film and TV studio, is exploring a deal that would merge Skydance with Paramount Global. Warner Brothers Discovery has also had preliminary talks to acquire Paramount Global. Comcast CEO Brian Roberts this week downplayed rumors that his NBC Universal could merge with Warner Brothers Discovery. So yeah, it's it's a very, very challenging economic climate right now, not just in media, but obviously in the entertainment sector and beyond. We know that Linear has been declining and continues to. But yeah, you want to right-size spending or you're waving the white flag and, and handing over the, the, the Streaming Wars Championship banner to Netflix and letting it hang on to that. And then you're turning to them to help inflate your bottom line by, by sharing a title like Sex in the City. You know, it's scary right now to be in this industry. It is very scary. And you can ask any one of the 1,900 people who work at Microsoft and Activision who work in the video game sector who just got laid off this week too. It is a challenging time to say the least, Dan. What are people supposed to do, Leslie? <laughs> if the entertainment industry is downsizing, if journalism is downsizing, we can't all become publicists, can we? I mean, sure, if that's what you want to do. 
But who are we publicizing things to if we all just become publicists? You got me, man. (laughs) I'm trying to think of how I can afford to pay my mortgage, Leslie. This is all very, very depressing. Yeah, but there is always going to be a need to do what you do, Dan. You are one of the... preeminent television critics in our industry, the fact that you watch so much, even the garbage shows that you know before you even hit play, that you know are going to be trash, that you not only watch the pilot, you you watch as many episodes as they give you. Like They broke the mold when they made you, and THR is extremely lucky (laughs) to have you anchoring our TV uh, I was not asking to have my butt kissed. I was asking what we were I'm not kissing your butt. I'm saying, Dan, you're you're a... You are a god. You are the king among men. You are one of the utmost respected TV critics in our industry. And I am so proud to host this show with you. Remember, I remember when we started, I, I, I came in and I looked at you and I'm like, You've, you're the one that's done this before, right? How many episodes did you do with Alan? We did 300 episodes of Firewall and Iceberg. So until we pass that, I'm still going to continue to look to you because you have an encyclopedic knowledge of this industry, not just of the programming, but the business of it. Because I, I, I'm going to stop here. Stop, and, you know, but stop kissing my butt. I want to know what people are supposed true. to do. I don't know what people are going to do. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> don't ask me. I've been doing this for 20 years. It's all I know. And that is because you are the best in the business. And if I uh, wanted to know stop. anything about any industry news, Leslie, I would go only to you first and foremost, because you're you are the kind, best at what right, you do, Leslie. <laughs> I don't push play on the shit. <laughs> I defer to you for to do that. <laughs> we, we we have different jobs within the same world, which is why our, this uh, this podcast is funny or fun or useful or entertaining, something like that. I don't know. Hopefully. Whatever whatever we are to people, that's what I just the ho- look. look I just hope we make it to three hundred. I'm not gonna that lie. Be- Roughly a year from now that we would be aiming to do that. So Yeah, but like Dan said in the intro, if there's journalism that you like, support it. If there's a streamer you like, support it. Pay for your shit. That's why, look, everyone's you know cracking down on password sharing and everything else. Like All of these things exist for a reason. And it's because these companies overspent on streaming to try to compete with Netflix when Netflix was already global and most of these other companies weren't to start. And you cannot compete with Godzilla especially when you fed Godzilla and helped it become Godzilla, right? Like that's what all these companies did, right? Warner Brothers licensed all of their shows and friends and everything else. Like that's how Netflix got this big, was on the backs of these legacy companies. And now the legacy companies are sitting here saying, well, shit, we fucked up. And now we have to pay the price. Like you can't spend $17 billion on content every single year and not raise the price of your streaming service. Or not put ads in in your streaming service. You know what I'm saying? Like you have to, like we are in this era of contraction. And as much as we enjoyed and and complained to a certain extent about how much TV there is, and there's still a lot, you know, we'll get the, like I said, we'll get those numbers probably in the next couple of weeks from FX. But like I, for one, as a reporter, I'm kind of glad that it's not like juggling blowtorches anymore because it's like there were so many things to keep track of. And now it's like now you're starting to see these personalities emerge for these streamers, right? Like, okay, so we know what Netflix is. They want to be the end all be all and have something for everyone. And that they are. They already are. Internationally, the same thing. When you look at a a, a platform like Peacock, they're still trying to, they they still are in the midst of an identity crisis, right? You don't sell and give up on a show like Girls 5 Eva and cancel it and move it to Netflix if you can figure out a way to get people in the door. And maybe the NFL is that, but I don't think 
NFL viewers are going to give two shits about Girls 5 Eva, but I've been wrong before. But at the same time, like they have struggled historically with comedy. Look at, at the, the list of the things that they've that they've tried to mount and canceled, whether it was after a season or two. You know, when you look at their scripted stuff, like they've got this incredible library, right? The Office, 30 Rock. Then they have all these Dick Wolf shows, SNL, the full vault of SNL, and they can't get comedy to work there. And instead, it's like this this home for like true crime stuff. And great, that that's fine if that's your identity. But then you've got the same identity going on at Paramount Plus because they're the you know where you go when you want to watch procedurals, right? And it's like you're trying to figure out who you are while you're still spending billions of dollars, and you're trying to right size the company. And now there's all these merger and acquisition rumors flying because everyone needs to scale up to try to compete with Netflix to try to survive this landscape. And it's just not everyone's going to survive. And, and I, I know this is not new information to, to any of our listeners, but look, this is where we're headed. It's going to be survival of the fittest. And if you want to survive this landscape, you need scale. And that's why we saw Warner Brothers merge with Discovery. And that's why people are kicking the tires of Paramount. Up next. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Lots to choose from this week. It feels like some, like every streamer, all the major ones anyway, have something to offer this weekend. Amazon has Expats. That's the Lulu Wang show starring Nicole Kidman. Apple has Masters of the Air, which is the Band of Brothers and Pacific fr uh, franchise, but on Apple and not HBO. Then you've got Narcos with Sofia Vergara, a.k.a. Griselda on Netflix. Peacock has In the Know, which is the animated show from Mike Judge and Greg Daniels. Whatever Sexy Beast is launches on Paramount+. Plus. And then just for shits and giggles, you've got the final season of Hightown returning on Stars. Lots to pick from, Dan. What do you got? Really a lot to choose from. And there's some good stuff here. There's some bad stuff here. And then... Naturally and somewhat predictably, there's a lot of stuff that's somewhere right in between. But like, truly, as as Leslie just said, there really is something for just about everybody. So, okay, let's see. We're recording this on Thursday. It will be up on Friday morning. So let's just, for the purposes of chronology, let's start with the things that are already up, which would mean... Hmm, let's see. Where do we want to start? Do we want to start with Griselda? Sure, let's start with Griselda. As you say, it is, I, I mean, it's basically the Griselda Blanco story as interpreted by a bunch of people who, for the most part, worked on Narcos. The credited creators are, in some confusing order, Eric Newman, Doug Miro, Carlos Bernard, and Ingrid Escadeja. And um, only Ingrid is not a narcos veteran and like the okay so the nicest thing i can say about griselda is that it is a major improvement over the really kind of embarrassing lifetime movie with Catherine zeta jones in brownface with a ridiculous accent playing griselda blanco which was uh cocaine godmother or whatever it was called that was embarrassing the fact that they made that movie with Catherine Zeta-Jones doing that accent and with that makeup job in the 21st century, to me, is bizarre. So, okay, in this case, Griselda Blanco, of course, was notorious Colombian drug lord who was the queen of the cocaine and crack and drug scene in Miami in the 80s. And so having a Colombian legend, because Griselda Blanco is legendary uh played by a colombian actress 
Sofia Vergara is it's it's sort of progress. If if that's your version of progress, it's much better than Catherine Zeta Jones in the same role. And the director is Andres Bayes, and he's a, a Colombian director. So there is clear effort to get certain things right about this. Now, the things it's trying to get right are, for the most part, not really Griselda Blanco's biography. There are very strange deviations from facts for the purposes of dramatic contrivance that some of which I found bizarre because the entire thing begins with the premise that Griselda Blanco flees Colombia away from a semi-abusive, low-level kingpin husband. She flees to Miami with one key of cocaine and a dream. And that dream is to make it big off of that one key of cocaine. And the miniseries does not acknowledge or care if you know that in real life, Griselda Blanco had spent the better part of a decade with that former husband running New York's drug scene, that she was known by the national DEA as a major kingpin long, long before she became, she came to Mexico. So the whole narrative that this is a Colombian semi-housewife who had one key and turned it into billions is ridiculous. It has nothing to do with the truth. And that is what they push here. But part of why they push it is because they want to have her be sympathetic. Well, not really sympathetic, but more sympathetic than if you simply accepted that this is a woman who was responsible directly for the death of hundreds of people and indirectly for the death of thousands because she basically helped popularize cocaine in the United States, which led to the popularization of crack, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, responsible for the death of millions. I'm a I'm a fan of Sofia Vergara. She she was to me the best part rather consistently of good parts of modern family. And that is despite the fact that the modern family writers very rarely knew what to do with her character. They they often just accepted, haha, she talks funny and doesn't speak perfect English as being what that that character's major trait was. Sofia Vergara made her funnier than that. I honestly would have guessed that she won at least one Emmy for that show. She did not win one Emmy for that show. She won no Emmys for that show, though she was nominated several times. So this is her saying, as an executive producer, here, look at the things I can do. And in that respect, I think it's successful. She's got a kind of ridiculous prosthetic nose that doesn't really align in any visible way that I can see, even looking back at old pictures, with what Griselda Blanco actually looked like. But what it does is it makes her look less like Sofia Vergara, which I guess is the point. And she's solid. You know, the, the writing for the character is not very good, and the arc of the character is very formulaic. But for a while, it has some of the same intercutting elements that made Narcos and Narcos Mexico, etc., such a long-running success for Netflix. So the first three episodes, I was mostly on board on some level, kind of watching Sofia Vergara get to do different things. The last three episodes, I was finding it way too apologetic and way too cliche-driven. So that's Griselda on Netflix. Continuing with things premiering earlier, though I guess it doesn't matter anymore, because I can just tell you, you don't need to watch Sexy Beast on Paramount Plus. Leslie didn't know what it was, which seems entirely unfair. The movie's a good movie. It's a movie is a 2000 movie. Jonathan Glazer directed it. Jonathan Glazer, who is now up for several Oscars for a Zone of Interest. It was his first movie as a director. He was a very, very successful advertising and music video guy. The movie looks fantastic. Ben Kingsley was nominated well-deservedly for an Oscar for it. He has just a, a wonderful supporting role as just a, a tremendous psycho gangster in it. Ray Winston is terrific. And best of all, 
And this is truly my favorite thing about Sexy Beast. It is an 88-minute movie that has very little fat on it. So how do you honor a movie that has those successful elements to it? Well, around 24 years later, you make a movie with none of the same actors, none of the same writers, without Jonathan Glazer's involvement, and you take an 88-minute movie that was incredibly efficient and you make it into a 10-episode series that is so padded and so full of British gangster cliches. It is just utterly without purpose. Has nothing going for it on the top line. So you have James McArdle trying to step in for Ray Winston, not doing particularly interesting with it. You have Eamon Elliott stepping in for Ben Kingsley. It's not his fault that he's not good because he doesn't have the dialogue that was written for Ben Kingsley, but he also doesn't have the intensity and charisma that Ben Kingsley had. There are some decent supporting performances. Stephen Moyer plays the uh, main kingpin who Ian McShane played in the movie. He's having some fun, though, as with the movie, there's, there's a strange, not even undercurrent, current of sexual violence and homophobia that's tied to that character that the TV show makes worse than the movie, which was already questionable, did. I really like Sarah Green playing the Ray Winston character's future wife, Dee Dee. I think I think that's actually a good performance. And Tamsin Gregg, if you know her primarily from her comedy work, uh, she's really, really scary and has, I would say, almost all of the good lines that are in the series. Regardless, though, I, I watched, you talked in the last segment about how I watch everything. I watched three episodes and clocked out on Sexy Beast and did not write a full review of it because it just wasn't worth it. So yeah, moving on to In the Know on Peacock, which is created by and stars Zach Woods, who has been stealing scenes in, I don't know, just about every good HBO comedy for many years. And it's, it is a partially stop motion puppetry partially live action parody of NPR radio shows. So there are a lot of different layers of whatever. Uh, Zach Woods plays a host of a pseudo semi-popular interview show. And the joke is that he is over the top, progressive, NPR, woke, liberal, all of that. And he gives the impression of being entirely empathetic, but he's really wildly narcissistic. So he conducts all of these interviews and he doesn't really care about the people he's interviewing. And that's funny. And there's definitely an amusing semi-improvisational thing going on with the puppetry and then with the live action people appearing via Zoom. And so some of the guests are are truly kind of amusing people getting to play off of their images. Uh, Nora Jones is funny. Tegan and Sarah are very funny. Mike Tyson less so, but it kind of tries to make Mike Tyson uncomfortable in ways that are funny if you happen to want to find Mike Tyson funny, which people do. Leslie is making a... (laughs) Mike Tyson continues to work in Hollywood. Oh, yeah. But Hassan Minaj made up some shit about it for his comedy routine and can't get a job. Oh, no. Everyone finds Mike Tyson. Uh, convicted rape is convicted Mike Tyson. Convicted rape is Mike Tyson. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very amusing. And and no one no one cares. Uh, totally funny because he's, you know, say, say what you will. Mike Tyson did serve his time for 
the thing that he was convicted of. So if you say that that is punishment and now it's okay to find him lovable, then that is what Hollywood wants to do. He was not my favorite guest, uh, but there there are lots of interesting guests. Kaya Garber is in the first episode. She's kind of funny. Um, I she just amuses me because the idea that somebody created genetic cloning and used genetic cloning to uh, clone Cindy Crawford from the 80s, that seems like a totally reasonable thing to attempt to use cloning for. Also, between this and Bottoms, I get the feeling she's actually funny. So someone will find a good use for her someday. The overall premise of the show is really kind of stale. I, I don't... I, I don't I don't really know what the angle is that they think they have on NPR or on wokeness or any of that. But a lot of the dialogue within it is funny. And some of the supporting people are extremely funny, actually. Caitlin Riley plays uh, one of, I believe, the research assistant. And the second episode, she has a run of things where she's stepping in for the Zach Woods character on his radio show. And she keeps freezing in the in the booth on air. And some of that stuff actually made me laugh hard. So I laughed at the show. I don't know if it works overall, but I did laugh. So there's that. Okay. So that would be Griselda, which is so-so, probably not essential. Sexy Beast, definitely not essential. And In the Know, which some people will find very funny. I thought overall it was mixed, but it made me laugh. So let's get to the bigger shows. Expats, as you said, comes from Lulu Wong, and it's based on the novel The Expatriates uh, by Janice Y.K. Lee. And I loved Lulu Wong's uh, The Farewell. I I think it's just a great movie. And I kind of wish that Expats had more of the looseness and general interest in humanity that that movie has, because the show kind of gets hung up on a main mystery plotline involving Nicole Kidman's character, which is a lot of Nicole Kidman freaking out and crying and, and generally overacting in the way that sometimes she does very effectively. And even when she does it ineffectively, it's not like bad because, you know, she's Nicole Kidman's a good actress. I'm not I'm not saying anything revolutionary here. And Nicole Kidman has done a lot of crappy TV. I, I think, I, I don't know if she gets enough credit for just how many TV shows she's done and just how crappy some of them are and how forgettable some of them are. On the other hand, putting her name on this show helps get the show made. And there are things about the show that I really think are great. It's all filmed in Hong Kong. The ensemble is a very varied ensemble. Uh, Soraya Blue is in it. Jack Houston, who of course was so great on Boardwalk Empire. Ji Young Yu is, is tremendous. A lot of the ensemble's really good, but it just gets bogged down in this mystery plot line. Otherwise, it's the story of expatriates in Hong Kong at a pivotal moment in Hong Kong's history. And to me, that feels like it should be enough to be a TV show. I haven't read the book, so I don't know how the mystery element of it does or doesn't play in the book. On the TV show, it sucks up all the oxygen and the better things about the show don't get to emerge as often as they should. I've, I've watched five episodes out of the six, and I'll get to the six. It was, th- this one 100% was an issue of time. I, I would have I finished it, and if I had written a formal review... Angie Han wrote our formal review. I would have I would have happily watched the six because there were things about it that worked for me. And the fifth episode steps outside of the Nicole Kidman plot and kind of looks at different 
expatriate experiences in Hong Kong. Specifically, it looks at the lives of a lot of the people who are kind of in the background of the main series. And parts of that episode border on being wonderful, along with the problem that as you're watching it, you're constantly thinking, well, these are better stories that really should have been the focus of the series. And you can also sense in that episode so much more empathy and involvement from Lulu Wong as a filmmaker than in the rest of the series. I believe she directed the whole thing. She wrote a couple of the episodes, but it's just such a difference. And it's so frustrating when you get to an episode where the entire theme is, these are the people whose lives are real and grounded and more interesting. And you watch the episode and you go, actually, yes, you're correct. That's true. Okay, why didn't we watch that instead, uh, instead of a lot of screaming and crying and screaming and crying from Nicole Kidman. So yeah, that's what it is. But the fact they were able to film in Hong Kong, it gives every frame something a little bit different, something that you haven't seen countless times, something that isn't just shooting in Vancouver or New York or Atlanta or LA. It does feel different. And I I appreciated all of that. And I don't think Nicole Kidman's bad. She's just distracting because you're constantly thinking, great, Nicole Kidman, now let's get to the more interesting characters who aren't played by Oscar and Emmy winning actresses because they're probably better. Um, uh, Ji Young Yu in particular, I, I think is, I think she's great. I think this is the best role Jack Houston has had for a while. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I wanted expats to be better. And maybe if I wanted it to be better, the biggest frustration of it is that you can see the better parts <laughs> within the show. It's not like it's a show where there's a better version of the show and they're just completely unaware of it. And there's no sign of the better version of the show there. The better version is constantly in the background here. And for one episode, it's in the foreground and it's a little bit of an irritation, but that is anyway, that's Amazon. Also, I don't think they're doing any favorites with this one by uh, doing a, a weekly rollout for it. I, I think this is one that really and truly probably should have just been a six episode binge. I think they should have treated it in that way. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a very effective weekly show at all. So, and then last but not least, this is definitely the biggest show of the week. It is arguably the biggest show of the year. There will be other contenders, to be sure. Your three body problems and other things like that, uh, just in terms of sheer scope and scale. But Masters of the Air is big TV. It is, it is blockbuster TV. It is here we are and we are putting a lot of money up on the screen and not just a lot of money. You have to keep in mind this is a this is a Playtone World War II limited series, Playtone being Tom Hanks and Gary Getzman's production company. They previously did, along with Steven Spielberg, an executive producer here, Band of Brothers, Pacific. And it's been 14 years since the Pacific. And I don't want to imply that they've been working on this one every single second since then, but they've been working on this one a lot of the time since then, trying to get it right, because this takes the aerial portion of World War II and tries to tell that story or tries to tell corner of the story. It is the story of the 100th bomb group, uh, nicknamed the Bloody 100th, because they flew so many missions over Europe and... They suffered a disproportionate number of casualties. They were in horribly dangerous situations. And as the series wants to make clear over and over again, the aerial portion of this war was brutal. Of course, 
if you watch the Pacific, you know that the theme of the Pacific was the island hopping Pacific portion of the war was brutal. And if you watch Band of Brothers, you know that the point of that was the European front of the war was brutal. So war, it turns out, is hell. That is the message here. And it has a lot of the structural similar similarities to those earlier shows. And those earlier shows are classics. Uh, Band of Brothers is an all-time great limited series, just truly, absolutely pantheon of the TV miniseries genre, probably on a Mount Rushmore with Roots and one or two other things. So it just as good as it gets, the Pacific is, it's probably not as good, but it's in that conversation. So anyway, this is less good than those. It has real structural problems at times. It also suffers from the fact that because it is so much in the air, it is much more driven by computers and and computer graphics, but it still works an awful lot of the time. The two main stars are Austin Butler and Callum Turner, who play two members of the 100th. Callum Turner is the real, real star. Austin Butler looks like kind of a, a 1940s movie star version of what a, an air, uh, a bomber pilot looks like. Callum Turner is just given a great performance. Anthony Boyle is very good. Barry Keoghan is very good. Lots of the supporting cast is solid, though they're almost all in the biggest action scenes behind masks and hats. You you really lose track of people, and a lot of the supporting characters are there for one episode, for half an episode, etc. But the effects are tremendous. The sound design is ridiculously good. However loud you can pump this one up, it's worth it. At times, it's very emotional. Going back to the expats episode that I mentioned that kind of says, okay, here's the more interesting story. Maybe we should have been doing this the whole time. For some reason in the penultimate episode here, they decide to introduce the Tuskegee Airmen. And part of that is because the story of the 100th is invariably going to be a story of a bunch of white guys with mustaches because that's what they were. Now, they were heroic white guys with mustaches, but it's not it's not diverse. And so you bring in the Tuskegee Airmen and you bring in the Tuskegee Airmen as a secondary storyline in one episode that air that runs 49 minutes. To me, it borders on insulting because that story is a better story. I'm not saying it's a better story than the story of the 100th. That's a great story, too. It's just a better story than 22 minutes of screen time in one episode of a nine-episode series is. So it's a, a little bit frustrating. But it, the last episode worked well for me. It tied things up emotionally. And uh, there's a good dog named Meatball who is in many scenes, just a really good dog, a husky dog named Meatball. Apparently, completely based on fact, you can you can Google Meatball and, and the 100th, and you can find out that they totally had a mascot husky named Meatball. Totally true story. So, uh, huzzah. Anyway, Masters of the Air, if you like that kind of thing, it's huge television and it really works. Expats works sometimes, works exactly enough to be frustrating. Griselda, eh but good for Sofia Vergara, Sexy Beast, pass entirely. And uh, last but not least, in the know, it'll probably make some people chuckle. Some people will also find it intolerable. And now I'm going to stop talking. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to the Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV reviews for more. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you as always for listening to TV's Top 5. 
the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. We're everywhere. If you like us, rate us. Please do. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. Please do. They help spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on various social medias, where Leslie is rather consistently at Snoodit with two O's, S-N-O-O-D-I-T, and I'm rather consistently at The Fine Print, F-I-E-N. If you have questions for future mailbag segments, and we asked you for questions this week, and I'm going to be perfectly honest, folks, not a lot of good questions this week. We'd love some questions for future mailbag segments, though. Email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the numeral 5, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.